When the day of Pentecost came, they were all, to, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galatians? Galileans, not Galatians. Then how is it that each one of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phyga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and answered the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miraculous wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realms of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known 
to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of, Lord, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he had warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thanks, Paul. We had a church prayer night last Tuesday, and one of, one of the things we discussed and, and prayed about together was what our dream vision would be for our church this year, what we'd love to see happen in 2020 at Trinity Church Allgate. I think we'd all agree that, that we want to do things well, don't we? We want good sermons, good music, good welcoming, good pastoral care. More than that, though, we want what we do to be a blessing to everyone here. We want everyone in our church family growing in our love for God and for each other, feeling more connected, wanting to be here each Sunday on the, on the good days and especially on the bad days and really being a family together. And we also want new people joining us as well. We want to constantly be, see ourselves growing in numbers, filling up this hall, having to start a third service or find a bigger venue or plant a different church somewhere or, or something like that. But even more than that, we want to constantly be seeing people come to faith, don't we? 
people becoming Christians, getting baptized, and growing in their newfound faith. Because when that's happening, we have the clearest sense of God being at work. So when we read those last few verses of, verses of Acts 2 from, from verse 41, we want that, don't we? We want that for our church. But it seems so overwhelming, impossible even. And that's exactly the point. Acts chapter 2 shows us that we're dependent on God to grow and to strengthen this church. We pick up the events after Jesus has been resurrected. He's said to his 120 followers that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and that they will be spirit-empowered witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Jesus has then ascended back into heaven in in chapter 1, and we pick up at the start of chapter 2 with his followers being gathered together. And just as Jesus has promised, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a violent winds, there's fire, and they begin speaking in different languages. Now, this all happened around the time of Pentecost, a Jewish festival. This is, this is a time when thousands and thousands of Jews from the, the surrounding areas descended upon Jerusalem and inflated the population. And these tourists who are coming along are, are hearing the wonders of God being declared in their own languages. And understandably, they're, they're amazed at this. They're perplexed. They're bewildered. What, what's going on here? Part of the reason for the shock is that all of Jesus' followers were Galileans. And there's a, a few hints in other parts of the Bible that Galileans probably didn't have the reputation for being the most intelligent, educated people around the place. Now, at this point, Peter speaks up and, and he explains to everyone present what the significance is of what's going on, what they're seeing and hearing. It's not drunk rambling, Peter says. It's a really important Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled here. Prophecy that all of the Jewish people who were gathered there would have been well familiar with. Peter quotes the book of Joel, a prophet who, who prophesied several centuries earlier in the Old Testament. And he quotes a part of the book where Joel speaks of the last days when God will pour out his spirit on people who will then prophesy. Those days will culminate in the great and glorious day of the Lord, which is a fearsome occasion. And on that day, those who are saved will be those who have called on the name of the Lord. So when God's spirit is poured out, it means that the last days have begun, which means the day of the Lord is coming, which means that judgment and salvation are coming. And Peter is saying, look, the spirit has been poured out. These are the last days. Judgment is coming. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? And what he then tells them is that who Jesus is, is crucial. Jesus is the crucified, resurrected Lord. And Peter, as he does this, he he builds up the tension slowly as he explains this. The the Old Testament references that he uses go over our head a little bit at at a first reading. But for Jews who knew their scriptures well, this would have hit them right between the eyes as they heard it. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you, Peter says. Through him, God performed miracles among you, which you yourselves know. What this shows us is that the miracles that Jesus did during his lifetime were well attested to, 
at that time. So Peter could say these things even to an audience of people from out of town, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. Peter then reminds them, you handed this man Jesus over to be put to death. These are people from out of town who he's talking to here, and most likely none of them were around when Jesus was killed. It's a collective guilt of the Jewish people that that Peter is talking about. But, he says, this was all part of God's plan all along. And God raised Jesus from the dead. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Peter then quotes a couple of Psalms, which were originally written by King David about a thousand years earlier. And in the first one, David is confident of not being abandoned to death. He's confident that his body is not destined to decay. And then the second one, Peter quotes in verse 34 and 35, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's about being seated at God's right hand, the position of greatest honor. But Peter asks, why would David say these things about himself? Because clearly David wasn't resurrected. His tomb is still here, nor did he ascend to a place of glory in heaven. No, David is referring in these Psalms to someone else, a descendant of his whose tomb is empty, who did ascend to heaven, and who has poured out his Holy Spirit, as everyone who was there that day could clearly see. Peter has drawn out the tension, and now he tells them plainly in verse 36, let all Israel Be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, you can't understate the gravity of this realization for the Jewish people who who were listening to Peter here. For centuries, they had awaited the Messiah. The Jewish prophets back in the day had foretold of the coming of the Messiah. Their ancestors had longed for him through exile, through rebuilding, through war, through foreign occupation. And now the Messiah had finally come. He'd finally come to the people who he'd promised to come to. And they'd killed him. Which would be bad enough on his own, on its own. But now God has raised this Messiah back to life. And he's promised this Messiah a decisive everlasting victory over his enemies, which you'd assume would include the people who are collectively responsible for handing him over to be killed, people who should have known better. So they've made a big, big mistake here. Now, we all know what it's like to make a mistake. Has anyone here ever gone to fill up your car with petrol and then realize that you don't have your wallet or your purse or anything with you and you, you don't have anything to pay for the petrol? And yep, I think a few of us have been there. I had that happen twice last year. Not once, twice. You'd think I'd have learned from the first one. So that's twice that I've had to call up Alicia and get her to send a photo of my driver's license and do all the back and forth and feel like I'm at the debt collectors. We all make mistakes. We know what it is to make mistakes. But this is a mistake of of cosmic proportions here, isn't it? The Israelites have waited for thousands of years for this Messiah to come. This is the generation who had the privilege of being alive when the Messiah finally came, and they killed him. And so they're cut to the heart. They're devastated at what they've done. 
And they're terrified of the consequences as, as well. All they can think of to ask Peter and the other apostles is, what do we do now? What do we do now? It's a good question. What do you do if you know that things aren't right between you and God? If you know that your eternity is in his hands, but you've been ignoring him or outright rejecting him? How do we respond to Jesus, the resurrected Lord? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not quite sure where you stand. You're still working out what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 37 leaves us with people who realize that there's a problem between them and God. They're living in the last days. Judgment is coming and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they've rejected the Lord. Rejecting Jesus is as big a mistake now as it was back then. Because how we respond to Jesus determines where we stand before God. And the amazing news of this passage is that forgiveness is freely available. It's freely available even to those who are far off, even to those who handed Jesus over to be killed. No one is too far away to be saved if they respond appropriately. What does this response look like? Peter tells them it means repenting, it means turning away from a life of rejecting Jesus and following him. It means being baptized, which is a public expression of faith. Faith that Jesus has provided the only way for me to be saved. Because Jesus, by God's deliberate plan, has taken our sins on himself on the cross. And when that happens, when we've trusted in Jesus, when we've repented of our old way of life, we've chosen to live for him, we're saved. Our sins are forgiven. They're placed on Jesus instead of on us. And we receive the Holy Spirit who works in us to make us more like Jesus each day and empowers us to be witnesses of Jesus to the surrounding world. Now, notice Peter doesn't just gently suggest this. He doesn't just say to them, look, you know, it's, it's a festival week, it's busy, you've got things on your mind, but, you know, when you get the chance, you should probably, you know, repent, be baptized, get the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, all that sort of thing. No, he warns them and pleads with them, doesn't he? There's urgency and there's desperation in what he says. And so with that in mind, if you haven't trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and a right relationship with God, if you haven't repented and turned to Jesus in faith, then let me warn you and plead with you. The warning is that we're living in the last days. Judgment is coming. Only those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. Everyone else will face the full force of rejecting God and so being rejected by God as his enemies. That's terrifying and it's unnecessary as well because Jesus' death was by God's deliberate plan so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could come into a right relationship with God. And if we repent, if we commit to following Jesus, we're saved from that punishment. We're promised a new life with him forever. That's the warning. And so the plea is this. If you haven't repented, but you know that you need to, please do. 
come to God and tell him that you want to follow Jesus and turn away from a life of rejecting him. If you're not sure, then, then please come and have a chat to, to me, to Chris, our senior pastor, next week when he's back from leave, uh, to someone else here who you know and trust. We'd love to be able to chat with you and, and pray with you and be able to help you take next steps. If you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, Peter says, then you need to. Please, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, know that your sins are forgiven and that you're no longer God's enemies. Now, if you've made that decision at some point in your life to follow Jesus and, and live with him as your Lord and Savior, then that's wonderful. Though perhaps you might wonder, why didn't I have the special experience of the Holy Spirit that all the apostles and the followers of Jesus seem to have with the, the wind and the, the fire and the tongues? Am I even saved if I haven't experienced that? Well, the pattern that we see in the book of Acts is that these amazing demonstrations of the, the Spirit's power tend to occur as the gospel breaks new ground, whether that's culturally or geographically. It's God's way of authenticating what's happening. So we shouldn't expect it necessarily to be our experience. Well, on the other hand, we shouldn't assume that God will never act in, that, in those sort of ways, that the Spirit will never work in those sort of spectacular ways. But if you've trusted in Jesus, Jesus as your Lord and given your life to him, then you have the Holy Spirit. Which means, if you haven't done so, you should get baptised. Being baptised isn't what saves you, but as we'll continue to see as we, we go through the book of Acts, it's an appropriate response, an appropriate public response to being saved. If you're here this morning, you've put your trust in Jesus, but you haven't been baptised, then we'd love to have a chat with you about that. Feel free to have a chat with me afterwards. We'd love to be able to make that happen at some point. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He empowers his people by his spirit to be his witnesses to a lost world. So if you've chosen to follow him, then that's who you are, spirit-empowered witnesses. It may seem to, to play out in a less spectacular way than what we see in Acts chapter two, but that's who you are, spirit-empowered witnesses. And the Holy Spirit empowers us, not just individually, but collectively as well, which brings us to this wonderful picture of the church that we see in verses 42 to 47. Now, the early church wasn't perfect. We'll, we'll see that pretty clearly as we get further on into the book of Acts. We'll, we'll see that there were issues and problems that came up, as, as you'd expect any time when sinful people are involved in anything. What it shows us, though, is the noticeable effect that the saving gospel message and the work of the Holy Spirit have on this new community of believers. It gives us a lot to think about as we look at how our Sunday gatherings, our growth groups, and every part of what we do as a church takes shape this year and beyond. And with, with these things in mind, I hope that everyone here will commit not just to being here regularly on a Sunday this year as, as you're able, if, if you're a regular member here, but also that you'd, you'd be in a small group, uh, commit to that, but most of all that you'd be excited about these things and that you'd be blessed by your involvement in them as well. So let's have a look at what this early church was like. Firstly, it was a church that loved God. We see there that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
Now, we don't have apostles in the church anymore. That was a very select role for a select group of people at a select time. But we do have the inspired teaching of the apostles in the Bible. And so for us today, what this looks like is being devoted to God's word. And so the Bible is our foundation. We had a a growth group leaders meeting last Wednesday, and as a group, we brainstormed what was important for our growth groups. What what do we want our growth groups to be characterized by? And we agreed that the Bible has to be the foundation for what we do. I know it was the sixth or seventh thing that got mentioned when Richard asked today, but I'm I'm sure it's number one for all of us. The Bible has to be the foundation for what we do, not just understanding it, but actually applying it concretely in our lives and being able to live it out. Uh, They were devoted not just to the apostles' teaching, but to prayer as well. Again, this is something that we agreed was a non-negotiable for our growth groups. It's why we pray in Sunday gatherings. It's why we begin each term with a prayer night, Um, because we're expressing our absolute dependence on God to be at work in and through and around us. They were also devoted to the breaking of bread, which most likely refers to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So remembering Jesus' saving death in the way that he instructed his disciples to. They were constantly praising God as well. Verse 47, there was a desire in this church for God to be glorified. It was a church that loved God. Not just that, but it was a church that loved each other as well. They were devoted to fellowship, which means more, it goes beyond just chatting about the weather over morning tea, but really doing life together, being close enough uh, to be able to know what's going on and to be able to speak into each other's lives. And again, this was something that rightly came up time and time again at our growth group leaders meeting last week, that we want our groups to be places where we're building real relationships, where we're really able to do life together. I thought it was was helpful what Richard said when he was up here, that church is something where we're we're able to to love each other broadly, but but our growth groups are ways where we're really able to deeply love a smaller group of people and to build those deeper relationships over time. The early disciples ate together in each other's houses. Hospitality was really important back then, and it's really important now as well. There's something special about opening up our homes to each other and sharing food with each other. Uh, There was a generous culture. They were sharing what they had to bless each other. We kicked off our youth group a couple of weeks ago. We had a a pool party Friday a couple of weeks ago, which was good fun. And you, as a rule, you generally need a pool to run a pool party. And the, the Salmons were kind enough to let us come over to their place and use their pool and muck around there for four hours. It was, it was fantastic. We were blessed greatly by their generosity. It's just one example of um, people in the church blessing each other with what they have. And verse 46, they continued to meet together. Is church on a Sunday or growth group on a Tuesday or basement on a Friday something that I make every effort to be at whenever I can? We love each other by meeting together regularly, literally being there for each other. Meeting together regularly gives us the best chance of not just caring well for each other, but being cared well for as well. Just one of many reasons why growth groups are such an important thing. It's a church that 
not only loved God and loved each other, but they loved everyone around them as well. They met publicly, they enjoyed the favor of all people, and people joined as well. The church grew, which implies that this was a community that not just proclaimed the gospel message, but lived it out in their lives as well, conducted themselves accordingly. It's clear that as, as we read through the book of Acts, that the church was never meant to be insular. It was never meant to be an insiders only kind of thing. It's meant to go out and reach people and bring, bring people in. And with that in mind, we're planning to run regular outreach events as a church this year. We've got the Mark Drama booked in, as you would have heard about. I'm, I'm already looking forward to carols again. This December, I had my first Hills carols experience last December and loved it. So I'm what, 320 days till Christmas, so it's probably about 302 days till carols or something, so that's, that's, that's exciting. Uh, we've got a couple of other events in the pipeline as well that we'll have details out for soon. We've got Christmas and Easter, of course, which we always make as invitational and as accessible for new people as possible. We want to give everyone in our community, in our families, in our workplaces, our friendship groups, every, everything, the best chance to hear and respond to the gospel. Finally, it was a church that loved God, loved everyone, loved each other, and it was a church that was dependent on God as well. The Lord added to their number. We depend completely on Jesus for our salvation and to bring others to be saved as well. And we depend completely on the Spirit to empower us to be Jesus' witnesses. This church won't bear fruit without God's provision. No church will. There are things God calls us to do as a church. He calls us to love him, to love each other, to love everyone, to pray, to hold his word as the foundation for everything that we do, to have fellowship together, to meet together, to share generously, to warn and plead with others to accept Jesus and be saved. But it's God who brings the results. It's Jesus who saves people and Jesus who adds to our number, which is why we pray. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that all who are near and all who are far away can call on his name and be saved. Uh, for those who are not at that point yet, Father, we pray that they would come to that point for those who are connected in with our church family, either coming along here on a Sunday or family members or friends or workmates. We ask that you would be bearing fruit and that you would be bringing people to recognize their need for Jesus and to call on him in faith, to repent and to be baptized. Please give us the great joy of seeing that happen in our church this year. We know that we depend entirely on you for it to happen. We pray that you would be equipping us by your spirit to be Jesus' witnesses to those around us, to share the good news and what it means for us, and to be your witnesses in Aldgate, in, in Stirling, in, in Mount Barker, and to the ends of the earth, Father. Help us to speak your words, and we pray that you would work in hearts and minds and bring people to faith. Please be growing us as your church. Please be helping us more and more each day to mirror this wonderful picture of the church that we see in Acts chapter 2. 
Um, but help us to know that these things are ultimately not up to us, um, but it's up to your spirit to work your word into people's hearts and bring them to faith and to grow them. So please, would you be growing us, growing us in number, growing us in love for you, growing us in people coming to faith, all for your praise and glory. Amen.